Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show across the nation. The phone number is 877-973-7425. Now, full disclosure, I have my braces in again. We will not be talking about fascist bigots today, lest we run into problems with my tongue and impacting my braces. <laughs> Gosh. Oh, um, I, I, I do have a housekeeping note that I need you guys to know about uh, out of the gate today, just so you're not caught off guard. Tomorrow, particularly if you're new to the program, tomorrow is Good Friday. And when I was just starting in radio, I literally had never worked for a company ever that didn't take off Good Friday as a holiday. And then I got into radio and apparently nobody does. And so I said, well, I'm going to do a show about Good Friday. And I did. Uh, it <laughs> uh, At the corporate level, let's just say, it didn't go over very well. Uh, but by Monday, so many people were calling the station asking for, for copies of the show uh, that then they started making me do it every year. And now I do a Christmas one as well. And I'm kind of committed to doing it. And I, I figure it's kind of my tithe. I got uh, roughly 48, when you take into account vacations, uh, weeks a year where I'm on the radio talking about all sorts of stuff. I can take one day to talk about uh, what really even secular historians say is the most important event in human history. There was a survey by Oxford University. Uh, it's been about a decade ago now. And they asked historians at major universities around the world, from China uh, to the United States, what was the most important event in history? And you get things uh, like the building of the Great Wall of China, uh, Marco Polo, uh, Alexander the Great conquering the world, the Roman Empire. But the number one, the number one uh, event in human history uh, by all of these professors around the world from over 100 universities, uh, what was averaged out to be the number one issue was the killing of a guy in Jerusalem about 2,000 years ago. Uh, and whether you believe in what happened thereafter or not, that a bunch of secular historians at world-famous institutions around the world uh, came together and agreed that is the most important event in human history. I think we can spend uh, the anniversary of that day focusing on that, which we will do tomorrow. Normally in the past, I have freeformed this and have just done it myself over a three-hour period. It gets a little tiring and stressful and emotional. Uh, it gets a little more than a little emotional. Um, and I have actually last year interviewed Tim Keller, the theologian, and he couldn't make it this year. He's got pancreatic cancer. He's going to try to make the show in a couple of weeks. Um, uh, to come on and talk, but I've got Scott Sauls uh, from Nashville, Tennessee. He's a Presbyterian pastor up there at a very large church. I have Legan Duncan. He is the Chancellor of Reformed Theological Seminary where I'm in school. Great theologian, also the senior pastor at First Presbyterian in Jackson, Mississippi. I've got Ed Litton. He is the president of the Southern Baptist Convention joining me. And my friend Eric Reed, a uh, Baptist pastor up in outside of Nashville in Lebanon, Tennessee. They'll be joining me on the show tomorrow uh, talking about different things. They've all got powerful stories, uh, individually powerful stories. Uh, I talked to Ligon about theology uh, but then the rest of them really about culture and, and their lives. Uh, and hopefully it'll be an encouragement to you guys in addition to everything else we'll talk about. So tune in tomorrow. Uh, I, I Unfortunately, there won't be as much music because we've discovered as we've grown, some stations can't. 
um, let you play that much music. And then also we can't turn it into a podcast if we add all the music. Uh, they won't let you anymore because of licensing fees. So by doing the show live tomorrow, uh, we'll be able to also get it into podcast. You can always text the word show to 33777 uh, and get a link to the podcast feed. If you want it now, uh, we got to begin today with what should not be the biggest story. I say this intentionally this way. This should not be the biggest news story of the day, but it is. It is in every major news outlet on the front page of every news website, and people are genuinely melting down about this. Here is the headline from Bloomberg News. Elon Musk makes $43 billion unsolicited bid to take Twitter private. World's richest person will offer $54.20 per share in cash. Tesla executive is one of Twitter's uh, most watched firebrands. Now, this is the actual story here. Musk 50 announced the proposed deal in a filing with the U.S. Security and Exchange Commission on Thursday after turning down the chance to take a board seat at the company. Musk, who also controls Tesla, first disclosed his take of about 9% on April 4th, making him the largest single investor. Tesla shares fell about 3% on concern that the attempt to acquire Twitter will be a distraction for Musk. Twitter said its board would review the proposal and any response would be in the best interest of all Twitter stockholders. Now, interestingly enough, Twitter has now come out with a statement from Goldman Sachs that says that uh, Twitter uh, buying it for $54.20 a share is not enough, that the shares are worth more. Interestingly enough, Goldman Sachs actually has an independent statement a review of Twitter saying the shares are worth about $30. So Musk is willing to pay a premium on what Goldman Sachs said Twitter was worth. And now Goldman Sachs says, well, actually, Twitter shares are worth more than that after being hired by Twitter to say that. Uh, obviously, something smells funny here. Now, the larger issue is not that Elon Musk wants to buy Twitter, which probably will not happen. It'd be Hilarious if it did. It will be hilarious if it did because happening right now, live for the entire world to see, is a meltdown by progressives around the world and by the media over the idea. Let me just give you a sense of this from the tweet from Axios. The world's richest man, someone who used to be compared to Marvel's Iron Man, is increasingly behaving like a movie supervillain, commanding seemingly unlimited resources with which to finance his mischief-making. The headline, when you, when you click into Axios, the headline is actually Elon Musk goes into full goblin mode. Elon Musk recently referred to himself as being in goblin mode, when he took a 9.1% stake in Twitter and started tweeting manically about things like converting its headquarters into a homeless shelter. Musk can be a very dangerous beast when goblin mode is entered. You're going to hear much more about the bid than you would about a normal proposed M&A transaction in large part because Twitter is where journalists congregate and do a lot of their work and they really don't want to be working in Elon Musk's private playpen.
Max Boot used to be uh, have a seat at the table of Republican leaders. Max Boot is a, um, well, he's an attention getter. And I can't, I can't use the, can't use the phrase that I want to use because it's got a bad word in it that you can't say on radio. I once worked for a guy who cultivated celebrities around him. And my immediate boss referred to the guy as, well, a, a, a star screwer, we'll put it that way. And Max Boot used to have a seat at the Republican table where Republicans would listen to him on on foreign policy advice and and conquering the world and imposing democracy on the world and and, uh, globalization. And when Donald Trump became the nominee, it was very clear that Max Boot's days uh, being the the court jester of the Republican Party were over, and if he wanted crumbs, he would need to go to the Democrats. They were very happy to oblige Max Boot, who now spends every day writing the same column over and over about uh, what a jilted lover he is from the GOP and how terrible the GOP is now that they're not listening to Max Boot. And Max Boot says this is a terrible idea, having Elon Musk. And, and Boot, by the way, is speaking for a lot of journalists out there. You should know there are a lot of journalists out there who would agree with this. That Elon Musk taking over Twitter will be bad for democracy because for democracy to survive, you've got to shut down more voices. This is bizarre. His his actual words, I am frightened by the impact on society and politics if Elon Musk acquires Twitter. He seems to believe that on social media, anything goes for democracy to survive We need more content moderation, not less. I would first like to note, given Max Boot's history and views, asking him what's necessary for democracy to survive is about like asking the fox what's best in the interest of the hen house. You probably don't want to do that. The the idea that journalists, by the way, their ultimate meltdown is that, oh my gosh, he might let Donald Trump back on Twitter. You know, journalists spend a disproportionate amount of time on Twitter, and I can tell you, I I am a proprietor of a highly trafficked website. I get a great bit of traffic on my writings, particularly today, what I've written today. I get a lot of traffic on it. Very little of it comes from Twitter. Megan McArdle, who writes at the Washington Post, she's an economist, libertarian, points out that uh, journalists spend a ton of time on Twitter, it fosters groupthink among the the Twitterati, among the blue check marks, and very little comes of it. They expose themselves as being progressive. They obsess about things ordinary Americans do not, and they don't get a whole lot of traffic for it to what they've actually written. People read their tweet and think they have read everything, and, and they don't actually go over to the news source to actually read. It's fascinating. It is ridiculous. And these people, particularly progressives, are melting down. Think about this. 
the left is upset that people may be able to say what they want on the internet. The left gets to say what they want on the internet. In fact, Twitter ruthlessly, mercilessly punishes anyone who says anything that deviates from left-wing orthodoxy. Twitter has a policy that you cannot cover anything that related to hacked material. So the New York Post, because it's information on Hunter Biden, was about a hacked laptop. They got their account suspended. ProPublica is a media outlet, and someone has leaked the tax returns of the 400 wealthiest Americans to ProPublica. It is against the law to leak IRS returns, and someone has leaked IRS returns to ProPublica. This should be an international story of outrage that the American tax system is undermined when its privacy is jeopardized by progressive activists embedded within the bureaucracy. Twitter should turn off ProPublica's account because of it under their hacking rules, but they want because uh, ProPublica stories about the wealthiest Americans and they're the bad guys for the left these days. They're useful for the left. And so while they'll turn off the account of the New York Post, they would never dream of turning off the account of ProPublica that has gotten uh, stolen information from the IRS and they're, they're broadcasting it for the world to see about the 400 wealthiest Americans. And they think, and they're right, that you won't be outraged because you're not one of these 400 people. You think the rich are bad, or at least that's what they presume, and so you'll be okay with it. So they're perfectly happy to have this, but not to have Donald Trump on Twitter. And they're outraged that Elon Musk might take over Twitter and allow free speech on Twitter. Individual Engineers at Twitter have said they're considering quitting because Elon Musk is the majority shareholder now. And they don't want to work for Elon Musk because Elon Musk is a libertine. He's not a libertarian per se. He loves government subsidy. He's a libertine. He's a hedonist. And he's a free speech absolutist. This, again, this is important and you need to understand this part of it. This should not be the biggest story of the day but it actually is the biggest story of the day. And it is the biggest story of the day covered by every major media outlet because they are horrified some man might buy the platform where they get together in their bubble and allow people the audacity to say what they want and possibly penetrate that bubble. You know, when I started out and could get nice quality sheets, I just thought I'm gonna get a high thread count sheet. And if I get a high thread count sheet, it's going to be a really good sheet. Boy, did I learn that's not true. It's a myth. Boland Branch, however, uses the best 100% organic cotton threads on planet Earth for superior softness and a better night's sleep. You can get a really good high thread count sheet, but if the underlying sheet is, well, crap, um, it's not going to work for you. Boland Branch, however... My gosh, their sheets aren't just buttery, breathable, and impossibly soft to start, but they have the sign, the number one sign of a really good sheet. The more you wash them, the softer they get over time, and they don't tear up. They just get soft. It's perfect. You can try Bowl and Branch to the highest quality threads on earth for superior softness and a better night's sleep. They're th so luxurious. They're beloved by three United States presidents. And they've got over 10,000 stellar reviews. I'm one of them. I love my Bowling Branch sheets. You can feel the difference the moment they come out of the bag. And every wash 
It's just, man, they just transition to softer and softer. They're fantastic. Right now, get 20% off site-wide April 11th through 17th, only at boldenbranch.com. That's boldenbranch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com for 20% off site-wide April 11th to April 17th, boldenbranch.com. Welcome. The phone number is 877-973-7425 if you want to be a part of the program. Um, I, I want to spend a few more minutes on this particular story. Someone within the Internal Revenue Service has leaked the private tax documents of the 400 wealthiest Americans to a uh, liberal journalism outlet called ProPublica. They claim to be in the public interest, but they're pretty left of center uh, in their worldview and how and what stories they write. This should actually be a story of, of national, if not international, outrage that some progressive within the Internal Revenue Service leaked that information. Part of the uh, stability of the American tax system is that it is private and confidential. Your tax records are not supposed to be shared. That someone decided to leak this information is a breach of government trust to the public. And it's easy for people to dismiss it and say, well, it's it's the it's in the public interest that we know about these billionaires, but it's not really in the public interest that you know about anyone else's wealth. It's really not. The IRS and the government know Congress is allowed confidentially to get the information to shape public policy, but you don't need to know about it. Gossip is a sin to begin with. And people are justifying the leak for a host of reasons, in large part because it's for the greater good. Whose greater good is it? Whether you like it or not, the 400 wealthiest Americans or the 400 largest taxpayers in the country, who happen to be about the 400 wealthiest Americans, pay a significant portion of the federal budget. You would think the federal government would want to protect their information and not encourage them to move their capital and their their, uh, earning power to a different country. It simply is abusive that something like this would happen. It is uh, obscene that the American press corps is not outraged by this and covering the story. To the extent they're covering the story, they're covering the salaciousness of it. They're covering the gossip of it. They are not covering the fact that this undermines the integrity of the American tax system. And in fact, the people who are speaking up and pointing out just how abusive this is are being attacked for pointing out just how abusive this is for the variety for for the reason that we should want these people why what have these people done well let's see um I, I, as i scroll through you've got alice walton she's the heir to the walmart fortune rob walton luke walton they've actually provided a a great service to the country in the creation of walmart bill gates I mean, I'm a Mac guy. I'm an Apple guy. Uh, But you can't uh, undermine what Windows and Microsoft have done for technology in this country. It is ridiculous to me that, one, uh, an outlet would think it was good journalism to expose this sort of stuff and invade the privacy of these individuals. And two, that the American press corps 
which loves a story about good government and bad government and, and government incompetence and, and government malfeasance is giving a complete pass to the story because it's so easy to uh, villainize the wealthy. I mean, look at how they're villainizing Elon Musk for wanting to buy Twitter. This is not good and destabilizes our tax system. Yes, you can. Uh, you can be a part of the program. As the voice says, 877-973-7425. Pierce, I'm going to go to you first today. Welcome. Hey, good afternoon, Eric. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. You know, the whole thing with releasing these 400 wealthiest Americans income tax information. Number What's one, that? Merrick Garland should be openly promoting coming out and saying this is a violation of federal law and we're going to investigate and we're going to prosecute. Mm -hmm. The Treasury Secretary should be up in arms. And, you know, they should be because about half these rich Americans are Democrat supporters. <laughs> More and, than half of them, actually. <laughs> I'm just saying, I was being nice. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, really, <laughs> in reality, what a great promotional commercial for the fair tax this would be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. Uh, I mean, for, for really, and you know, interestingly enough, one of the things that they note is like Warren Buffett, who is one of the world's richest men, actually, uh, he intentionally does not take income. He takes um, he gains. takes dividends, capital gains, and then he borrows against his wealth. So he really doesn't have a lot of tax to pay. A lot of these other people who are on the list, though, uh, they make uh, something like $100 million a year. To get on this list yep. of the 400 wealthiest Americans, they have to have income of $100 million a year. I, I wish I did, but, man, I, I think I'd find it deeply corrupting if I had that much money every year. And ah, when you look at some of these no, people on right. the list, you look at some of the people on the list, and you're like, gosh, you people, you and your kids, I mean, you're you're all screwed up. I don't I don't know what a – money can just be so corrupting. I, you know what? I, before I get on a tirade, I'm going to thank you, Pierce, and I'll let you go there. Have a great Easter. All right. You too. Bye-bye. Yeah. So, you know, I would, I, I obviously, I, I, I want to make more money. I've, I've got things that I want in my life and I've actually, um, with, with my career and the, the possibilities of my career, I've, I've been thinking what, what is, how much money do you really want to make? And, you know, I've actually come to the conclusion. I don't really want to make as much per year as I once thought I did. I don't really want to be a billionaire. Um, I don't want to be a hundred uh, millionaire, uh, at least in terms of, of income per year. Um, and I don't want to be a billionaire in terms of wealth. And largely because when you start looking at the people on these lists who are that wealthy, these are some deeply screwed up individuals who have chased the almighty dollar at the expense of their soul. And I just don't want that. And, and and though they may not be their kids, many of them, their kids are completely screwed up. And I wouldn't want to do that to my family. Look, I would love, uh, genuinely, I, I would love to make enough money to have a, a house at the beach that we could let friends uh, stay at as well. Like my wife and I, we've had this conversation. We'd love to go to Hilton Head. If we ever had a house at the beach, um, we'd like to have one on the beach one day. My wife actually wants one in the mountains so she can ride her motorcycle on the winding road. So have something in the mountains, have something on the beach, and not rent them out, let our friends use them. That that would be nice. That would be nice. Um, but I see people, and I know people, 
like I know some of the wealthy people on this list. Uh, I'm actually friends with more than one person. And, and when I say friends, I, I mean, I don't mean I know the people. I actually am friends with a couple of people on this list. And and I'm, I won't be talking out of turn to say with very few exception, if they're not screwed up, their kids are completely screwed up. And for my own kids' salvation, I don't want to be a billionaire because while it may not be corrupting on you if you grew up in a way where you didn't have stuff and you came into wealth through your hard work, your kids would be screwed up and they would probably resent you too if you didn't uh, give it to them. I, I, when Christy and I were first starting out in life, she worked at a law firm. And the, the senior named partner at this law firm uh, was very old and he passed away. And none of his kids would even show up at his funeral. Man dies and none of his kids will even show up at his funeral. They wanted nothing to do with him. They didn't want any money. They didn't want nothing. Um, their father worked and worked and worked and worked and worked and made a lot of money. And uh, they would have rathered their father, and they didn't want his money after he was gone. And then I know people, and, and again, I, I know s several of the people on this list, a couple of whom are friends of mine, and they have deeply screwed up kids. One of the people on this list, I, I'm, I won't go into names, I know him. Uh, three, he's got uh, several children, and three of them have been to rehab. One of them is a absolute sexual deviant. Um, and it just, it, it's, it's, it's sad to me because they live in that level of wealth and it becomes normal to them. I was talking recently to a friend of mine who knows one of the guys on this list. And I don't know this person. Uh, I know the friend. And the friend was telling me that this person has never even started a bathtub or a shower in his life. He he came into the money. He wasn't he wasn't self-made. He moved into the money from his parents and literally had never turned on a shower or a bathtub by himself in his entire life. He is a grown-up man and has still to this day never turned his shower or his bathtub on. Someone else does it for him. I'm flabbergasted that anyone would live like that. You are not royalty. Uh, it's like, for example, I read an article one time that the Prince of Wales has someone who puts the toothpaste on his toothbrush for him, like literally has someone whose job, a valet or a valet, as they would say, and it, the person's job is literally to put the toothpaste on his toothbrush. Who lives like that? that? That's not a way you're not living. You think you're living, but you're really not. You are captured by your wealth. Uh, it's just, I mean... The, the the love of money, y'all, the love of money, I, I would love to have more. I'd love to grow, to get it through, honestly, through hard work. But man, that much can just be so corrupting. Now, speaking of corruption, I actually want to get to the story. Tim Keller, uh, the theologian, pushed this out earlier. I, I saw it. Uh, it's, it's by, it's in the Atlantic, and it is, this story in the Atlantic is as good as people say. Normally, I read something in the Atlantic, and I'm like, well, this is left-wing nonsense. And I just, I want you all to know, if you can go to theatlantic.com and read this whole story for yourself, uh, you would be doing yourself a lot of good. The, the headline, the title of this piece is, Why the Past 10 Years of American Life Have Been Uniquely Stupid. 
And it, it goes perfect into the story of Elon Musk buying Twitter and the media being outraged by it. Let me, I'm going to read you the beginning of this. What would it have been like to live in Babel in the days after its destruction? In the book of Genesis, we are told that the descendants of Noah built a great city in the land of Shinar. They built a tower with its top in the heavens to make a name for themselves. God was offended by the hubris of humanity and said, look, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language there so they will not understand one another's speech. The text does not say that God destroyed the tower, but in many popular renderings of the story, he does. So let's hold that dramatic image in our mind, people wandering amid the ruins, unable to communicate, condemned to mutual incomprehension. The story of Babel is the best metaphor I have found for what has happened in the Americas since 2010 and for the fractured country we now inhabit. Something went terribly wrong very suddenly. We are disoriented, unable to speak the same language or recognize the same truth. We are cut off from one another and from the past. It's been clear for a while now that Red America and Blue America are becoming like two different countries claiming the same territory with two different versions of the Constitution, economics, and American history. But Babel is not a story about tribalism. It's a story about the fragmentation of everything. It's about the shattering of all that has seemed solid, the scattering of people who have been a community. It's a metaphor for what is happening not only between Red and Blue, but within the left and within the right, as well as within universities, companies, professional associations, museums, and even families. Babel is a metaphor for what some forms of social media have done to nearly all the groups and institutions most important to the country's future and to us as a people. How did that happen? And what does it portend for American life? Historically, I'm skipping down, civilizations have relied on shared blood, gods, and enemies to counteract the tendency to split apart as they grow. But what is it that holds together large and diverse secular democracies, such as the United States and India, or for that matter, modern Britain and France? Social scientists have identified at least three major forces that collectively bind together successful democracies, social capital, strong institutions, and shared stories. Social media has weakened all three to see how we must understand how social media changed over time, and especially in the several years following 2009. I'm going to leave it there. You should go to theatlantic.com. You should read the this whole story. I don't agree with all of it, but there are large parts of it I do agree with. And this comes up regularly in my conversations with people. And in these conversations I've had with these theologians and pastors, for tomorrow's Good Friday show, I've had to pre-record them. One of my biggest concerns in the world today, this may sound like nothing to you, but it is a harbinger of bad things to come. 
One of my greatest concerns in the world today is that when I talk about loving your neighbor, it is Jesus's commandment in the New Testament, love your neighbor as yourself. I point out, I've read the Greek. I've looked for the carve-outs. I've looked for the caveats. I've looked for the footnotes. I've looked for the exemptions. I've looked for the exceptions. I've looked for the exceptions to the rule, and there are none. You are to love your neighbor. And I know people, Christians, who think if their neighbor is gay, the way they're going to go love their neighbor is they're going to stand on their front lawn and say, repent, repent, repent. First of all, you're not going to get anybody to repent by being a biblical donkey or horses behind. You're just not. Secondly, it's not what is saying there. What is saying there is very much like the um, story of the Good Samaritan. Uh, you're to take care of your neighbor. In their time of need, you're to address not their spiritual need per se, but their physical need. You're to take care of them. And the number of people who don't want to anymore because of political differences is astonishing to me. It is staggering. Even people in the church who want nothing to do with their neighbor who's a progressive secularist. It's, it, it, you're given no choice of your personal faith. Your God tells you you have to, and yet you're trying to find carve-outs, loopholes, and exceptions to avoid doing that. Secularists don't have that, but you're not even nice to them to try to build a bridge to them. The divisions we have. The other thing is I will say on this program, and you should see the hate mail I get, when I point out, and it is accurate in every way, that with very few exceptions, and notice I am saying, by saying with very few exceptions, it does occasionally happen, but with very few exceptions, Washington, D.C., unless you live there, has very little impact on your daily life. Washington, D.C. has had very little uh, in the way of solutions or laws passed that fundamentally up in your life. There are exceptions. Obamacare is one. But there are very few exceptions to the rule. By and large, you are going to be impacted on a greater basis daily by your local government. And uh, the Bible, Jeremiah uh, chapter 29 says, seek the welfare of your community. Seek the welfare of, of where you live because there you'll find your welfare. And it means your local community and the number of people who have built communities online that look like themselves and think like themselves. And they are completely oblivious to the homeless guy down the street who's been there for a week. And they are hyper on focus about the legislation winding through Congress that will never pass. And they're agitated by it and they're angry about it. And they feel their world is under assault because somewhere, somewhere in a state not very close to them, a dude is swimming on a girl's swim team something we're all upset about. But should you be as upset about that far off event in a state that doesn't even come close to touching yours as you are about the fact that there's a man under the bridge who's starving and homeless and needs help? Social media has nationalized us and gotten us out of our communities into communities that we ourselves have created that look just like us and we no longer have the idiomatic expressions or the language by which to relate to one another. And so you can see that in the story of Elon Musk buying Twitter, how progressives are beside themselves in rage that he may come into the community they have curated and created and disrupted. They are treating him as if he's an intruder into their house. 
and Twitter's not really their community, but they now think it is, just as so many of you think online outlets are your community, when actually you live in a place where your family is, where your property is, that is actually your community. And too many of us, and I'm guilty of it too, forget that we're to seek the welfare of that community and not the one that's online. Now, when you're seeking the welfare of your local community, sometimes it stinks. My gosh, the smoky odors out there these days, you never know what they're smoking. You can eliminate those odors with the Eden Pure Thunderstorm in your house, in your car, in your RV, in your basement, in your hotel room, in your rental car. It's where I use mine. The Eden Pure Thunderstorm, you can get three of them right now. They eliminate odors. They get rid of the mildew, the mold, the bacteria, the pollen floating in the air. You can get three of them for less than $200. You're saving $200. You get free shipping. What you do is you go to EdenPureDeals.com, like the Garden of Eden, EdenPureDeals.com. You'll see a big box on the front page, and it says, put in your discount code. You put in ERIC3, E-R-I-C-K, three it'll take you to the eden pure thunderstorm where you can get three of them for less than two hundred dollars you're saving two hundred dollars you get free shipping you go through to check out and you get these things and they'll wipe out there's in their filterless you don't have to keep replacing the filter all the time you just wipe it out on occasion and they eliminate odors edenpuredeals.com the discount code is eric three This hour of the program is brought to you by First Liberty Building and Loan. They happen to be located in Noonan, Georgia, and it does not matter to you. If you're in Salem, Oregon, Springfield, Illinois, Orlando, Florida, Portland, Maine, you can use First Liberty and grow your business. What you do is go to firstlibertyga.com. Reach out to them, tell them I sent you, see if they can help your business grow. Uh, they are telling a lot of people yes, where banks are hesitant to say yes to anything these days. Buying a building, 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 you see potential where others don't. FirstLibertyGA.com. Tell them I sent you. Okay, we got to move on to other stuff. But before we do, I need to mention the doom. The doom continues to grow. The Quinnipiac poll, which is a poll the Democrats love because it Leans Democrat. It has um, Biden down 20 points. 35 to 55. The CNBC poll has it 38 to 53 down 15. That's bad. To put this in real world perspective, how it's playing out around the country, the Suffolk poll is out in, uh, in Nevada. And it shows a decisive shift to the GOP. Uh, Cortez Masto, the incumbent senator, is losing to any and every Republican they put up against her. The Democrats have to hold that seat. Uh, She is in bad shape. And in fact, Democrats around Nevada, according to this poll, are losing to the GOP. And Joe Biden's popularity is about 25% in Nevada. That's really, really bad. Doom is coming. The Democrats know it. They're about to get really savage in their election campaigns. It's 2022. Things are still crazy. Things haven't settled down. And now you got the Federal Reserve and interest rates. You got the economy. You got inflation. A lot of banks won't even return your phone call. Let's say you're a small business and you need a loan for $750,000 or higher. You see an opportunity where banks, they don't even want to see you. You want to buy a building. You want to build a building reach out to the Frost family at First Liberty Building and Loan. They've been helping small businesses become big businesses since the 1990s. They want to help you if they can. 
So spend 10 minutes with them. See if you're a good fit for them and they're a good fit for you. Their website is firstlibertyga.com. That's firstlibertyga.com. Again, you need a loan, $750,000 or higher. You're a small business and you see an opportunity to grow. Share it with the Frost family and see if they can help you. Firstlibertyga.com. That's firstlibertyga.com. First Liberty Building and Loan can help businesses nationwide become bigger businesses.